Romans chapter 12, that's where we're at. We're going we're gonna to pick up, um, we're going to read verses 4 through 8 again. Uh, I won't make you stand up as we read that, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit down. So, for it's one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, although many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, and the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who acts in the and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Uh, what a what a wonderful uh, wonderful text! And um, we just uh, as we get started here this morning, just tell you a, a little bit about a a children's sermon I, I saw once. It was a long time ago, uh, but I just I just haven't forgot it. The, the subject of it was uh, spiritual gifts. The, the pastor made like nineteen different cakes. Put a uh, all the cakes <clears throat> were different. Some looked the same uh, on the outside, but on the inside they were they were different. Some had white cake, chocolate cake. Others had different frosting. Some had different icing. Some the, the name of the gift it was written on the top and different. Um, so you could have a chocolate cake with white frosting, um, brown words on it. So there were all these different cakes, and the teacher made a big deal when he when he tasted the the first few cakes that he just didn't like them. Oh, white cake, ick. Um, until he found just the, the perfect cake that happened to have his spiritual gift listed on it. I, I think that's how a lot of people view spiritual gift. Um, for them, uh, spiritual gift is a matter of, of preference, kind of like our taste in the perfect cake. And I don't want to just bash the, the teacher. You know, his, his point in the end was that his perfect cake shouldn't be kept to himself. Uh, it should be shared. You know, what good is a gift if you just keep it all to yourself? And the answer is it's, it's not any good. In our text, uh, along with the list of gifts we have here, we have the, the admonition to, um, to use those gifts, right? So if, you're, if your gift is, is service, then didn't use it in, in serving. In other words, we need to share those gifts. Uh, we don't keep them to ourselves. And I think that's a really good point. My, my problem with the description of, of the gifts there in, in that illustration, the, the 19 cakes and the one that just fits you and the others produce this, this ick response in you, um, you know, one of the, the illustrations that the teacher used was, was the gift of giving. You know, that is a, a spiritual gift, but, you know, he said, that's just not for me. I don't like to give. You know, and then he kind of went on and said, but, but wait a minute, don't, don't misunderstand me. I, I'm not a tight person. He just wasn't a giver. But that kind of doesn't make sense to me. You know, we're all supposed to give and we're all supposed to do it cheerfully. I mean, it's kind of the same with, with evangelism. Evangelism shouldn't produce an, an ick response in any Christian. We're all called to, to share our faith, not only those with the gift for it. Do, do you see my point? Helping others would be the, the same way. Yes, there's some people with that gift of, of helping but that doesn't mean that the rest of us are supposed to be uh, selfish or have the, the right to be selfish. So 
in that respect, it, it isn't a, a really great illustration because it has the tendency to send the, the wrong message. And, and I would also say that spiritual gifts are something that are difficult to illustrate. Uh, we, we talked about this last time a little bit. You know, there, there's one body, but many members and their gifts differ. That's a little bit hard to understand. It's a little bit easier to understand when we start thinking about our own body because the church isn't quite like that. We don't see unity like we, in the church like we do in our own bodies. In fact, when we look at other people, we tend to think of unity first. For instance, I'm, I'm cold. Uh, I'm not a collection just of, of body parts. And, and when we look at another person, we say, there's that person, there's that unity. That, But with the church, we often start with the many members and try to figure out how they're one. And the interesting thing is, is that's precisely not really how we're supposed to look at the church. We're to start with our unity in Christ. That, that's why we spent so much time last week focusing on uh, the unity that we are in, in one body, because it's only within that framework can we understand the diversity within the church, within the body. So... This is where that, that illustration that we started with kind of, kind of breaks down. The illustration paints a, a picture of the church as a series of people who like different cakes. You like this cake, so share it. Somebody else likes hospitality cake, so they're supposed to share that cake and be hospitable. But that doesn't paint a picture of, of unity in the church, does it? It really paints the picture of, of diversity. But what is it that unites the people that like the different cakes? I think sometimes in the, in the life of the church, we buy into the mentality that you can do your thing and I can do mine. We can have nothing to do with one another. There, there need not be any meaningful unity if we're all sharing our own gifts, if we're sharing that cake and not keeping it to ourselves. But what I think Paul is, is saying here in these verses is that there is, there's no meaningful diversity in the church without an understanding of what unites us. So we ask that question at the onset here, what is it that unites us? And the answer is, it's Christ. It's, it's the gospel. It's the good news of what Christ has done for us. The fact is, we are sinners living in rebellion against God. We were. We undermined his will and desire for us. His holy commandments were, were broken. We scoffed at him. We took the reins of our own life. And in one way or another, uh, we lived for ourselves in open rebellion against God, and we deserve the, the just punishment for our actions. Justice is something that we know well. We long for justice in our world today. You hear uh, that word all over. There is uh, racial injustice. There's gender injustice. Some people get angry with God because bad things happen to them, right? Health-wise, financially. Uh, and what they are saying is that God isn't treating them justly. They deserve more. God, I've, I've been good. I, I've served you. And, and this is how you're going to repay me? We do that with God. We do it with others, right? When somebody betrays us, we think of them the same. I, I've, acted this, I've acted good toward you, and, and this is what you're going to do to me in return. I, I deserve better, and better in this case would be justice. People might have excuses. We make excuses all the time, but the fact remains that we're guilty, and we deserve to pay the penalty for our sins. God is just, and he deals with sin appropriately. 
He doesn't let the, the proverbial murderer go free, but God, in his wisdom, his mercy, he made a, a covenant with himself before creation began. And we call this the covenant of redemption. And it was a plan to, to redeem humankind from their sin. The plan was that, that God would, would send his own son who would take on flesh and become human and, and live the perfect life, live perfectly obedient and keep every command of God perfectly and because Jesus was human, he would willingly take the place of, of sinners and, and bear their punishment that they deserve. And he could do that because he was, he was a man. He could, he could take their place. And because he was God, the, the covering for sin would be enough for every single person that would place their faith and trust in him. We call this justification by faith alone. That is that faith in Jesus Christ is the instrument whereby we receive a justified status before God. We are, are right before God. We're good with God in that Jesus took our sin. He took that punishment upon himself on the cross. And it's through faith then that Jesus's perfect righteousness becomes ours, right? This is the, the gospel. This is the good news. It's the, the nexus of our, of our unity. We're united with Christ in the gospel. And therefore, as the text says in Romans 12 there, we are united with one another in one body. But the scriptures are also clear that, that this unity expresses itself in a diverse gifting. This is a, another area that we ought to be careful right off the bat. The illustration of Cade's of cakes there paints the picture of, of personal preference as if we are in control and we decide our, our own gift in this. But that isn't the case at all. It's the spirit of God that, that gifts people as he wills. The church is the Lord's church and he empowers the church for ministry and he does that as he wills. He does this through the spirit's gifting of believers for service and ministry. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11, we read this. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each individually as he wills. Why is, is this so important when speaking about spiritual gifts? It's important to know the, the purpose and function of gifts at the onset. The purpose of gifts isn't to separate and divide believers into haves and have-nots. I mean, there are churches, there are denominations perhaps that, that, that clearly say that if one doesn't have a certain spiritual gift, they're not as spiritual or they're not as, as sanctified as somebody who has it. They say that um, these churches often teach you how to have these gifts. So just... In that, there's a separation between those who, who have and those who do not have certain spiritual gifts. But we're told here clearly that the Spirit empowers and gifts as He wills, right? I have no problem then with trying to discern your, your spiritual gift. Spiritual gift uh, inventory tests have their place. They're a, a tool. They're not definitive. I was in school and, and had a, a professor once that, that told us that the best thing that you could do to discover what your spiritual gift was, was to get involved in about everything you could in church for a couple months, at least a couple months, right? Get on the greeting team, make meals for people, volunteer, do things, uh, you know, just be as active as you can, get involved in the, the nursery, be a, a teacher, do things behind the scenes, right? Pray for the pastor, pray for the leaders in the church, write missionary letters, just anything you can think of. And, and then ask yourself, where do you think your gifts lie? But also, in asking yourself, start asking other people, what do you think my gifts are? He said, this should give you a pretty good picture because sometimes we think we're gifted in what we're good at, but that isn't always where the Lord uses us. Remember that he gifts us and he's the one that empowers us so that sometimes our gifts are not where we would expect them to be. 
let's talk about the the diversity of, of gifts here for a, for a few moments. The the fact is, when it comes to the diversity of gifts, this is difficult for a lot of us because we're wanting other Christians to be more like us. We want people to be the same as us. That's natural. We also tend to see others as cogs in, in our machine rather than contributing to another Christian's work. This, I think, is why Paul is telling us here that not only is the church one body, but it functions as a body with many members that have gifts that differ. In other words, Paul is telling us here that, that we should accept the diversity that exists in the life of the church. The word that's translated gift here is the Greek word uh, charismata. You most likely recognize that word a little bit, like a charismatic church. We think of spiritual gifts. The word uh, charismata is used 17 times in the New Testament. 16 of those times are in Paul's writings. And I think it is important to recognize that the word that's translated gifts here charismata is based on the word grace, right? Charis is, is the word grace. So literally the idea is a grace gift. Grace is God's unmerited favor. So the idea, right, in the word itself is that these gifts are given by God according to his good pleasure. They're, they're given by his grace. They're used to his glory and for his plans rather than to enhance our own personal glory and further our own agendas. Of course, this is where the, the unity part comes in, doesn't it? Each in the body is, is working for the, the well-being of the whole body so that when one member does well, all others do well, and another suffers, the entire body suffers. So having said this, we're all gifted. All believers have at least one spiritual gift that's used to, to glorify God, and this is done in the, in the context of, of the body, of the church, the body of Christ, not, not apart from it. Right? There are those today that, that think that spiritual gifts are something that are, that are just between me and God. Um, my reservation there is that I don't find that explanation of spiritual gift in scriptures. I mean, the, the diversity of gifts is, is only understood in the light of the church. The one body so that each member works for the well-being of the whole body. Right, of the church in order to bring honor and glory to God. Individual gifts that are private, or so-called individual gifts that are private or between me and God, function outside of the church for the edification of the individual apart from the church. And I don't see that imagery here. I don't see it in any of the, the spiritual gifts tests. Um, but I'll say it again, that the only way to understand the diversity of gifts is in relation to the body and the unity of the church. So let's talk about exercising these gifts a little bit then. We should say at this point that in the New Testament, there are five places where the spiritual gifts lists are. And all the th items in those lists differ. So uh, we find those uh, in, in Romans 12, 6 through 8. That's where we are. 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. 1 Corinthians 12, 28 through 30. Ephesians 4, 11, and 1 Peter 4, 11. In Ephesians 4, we have the, the most basic list, uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and the pastor, teacher. 
In 1 Corinthians 12, 28-30, we have it start off the same way, but then it moves to what seems to be more offices of the church and specific functions like working miracles, healing, helping, administration, speaking and interpreting tongues. Our passage in Romans 12 has a little bit of both of those ideas. The 1 Peter 4 passage has two categories in which other gifts seem to fit into those. So in the New Testament, there's there's 19 gifts listed in those five lists. And of course, the number of those gifts is not absolute. For instance, there are different words that describe the same gift, and there are most likely gifts that they're not even they're not mentioned here. The representative list. In our text, Romans 12, we have seven gifts that are mentioned. So let's just take some time and, and talk about those briefly, recognizing that that's a, a representative list. Let's talk about uh, prophecy first. That's what, what Paul lists. So we see that in our, in our text. Uh, we see it in the 1 Corinthians 12.20 passage. We see it in Ephesians 4.11 also. In the 1 Corinthians passage, we read that God has given in the church first apostles, then prophets. This is much the same as the way the, the Ephesians text says. There, there are apostles and, and prophets. If we go back a couple chapters, though, in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, we see that the, the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That foundation, so it has been laid, and, and the church is being built on what they have laid down. The reason that apostles are not mentioned in our list, in, in Romans, and in, in prophets are, is most likely there were not any apostles in Rome. In the Old and New Testaments, the, the prophet is one who speaks the words of the Lord. The, the Greek word for, for prophet literally means one who stood in front of another person and spoke for him. An example of this would be Moses and Aaron, right? If you, if you remember, Moses was not willing to accept the call of God to go speak to, to Pharaoh in, in Egypt and demand that he let the, the Israelite people go. So he, he told God that, that he wasn't eloquent and, and God said that he would send Aaron to speak for him. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth and he will speak to the people for you and it will be as if, as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. That's how Exodus 4 verses 15 and 16 put it. Notice how the Lord explained what was going on. It, it would be as if Aaron were your mouth because you told him what to say and it would be like you were God to him. In other words, this is what a prophet is, right? God puts words in their mouth and they speak for God as if God is speaking. That's a prophet, as if God is speaking. In Exodus 7.1, we see it again. See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. In Genesis 20, Abraham is called a prophet of God because God spoke to him and he spoke God's words to other people. And it's the same in this way in the New Testament. I mean, we could go on and on and on. There seems to be several prophets in the, in the infant church in the time that the New Testament was written. So many that Paul devotes most of 1 Corinthians 14 discussing the, the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues, right? The gift of tongues is closely linked to the gift of, of prophecy here. It seems that from this and, and other texts that, that prophets were, were men or, or, or maybe women who, who spoke under the, the direct influence of the Holy Spirit to communicate a, a doctrine, to remind people of a duty, to give them a, a warning. 
So th- there weren't as many apostles, right? The apostles were, were specifically called and, and commissioned by Christ him, himself. There weren't as many apostles, and there were a lot more prophets in the life of the church. Charles Hodge uh, talks about the difference between uh, apostles and, and prophets and, and teachers. And, and he, uh, let me quote him, he says, The distinction between prophets and apostles considered as religious teachers appeared to have been that the inspiration of the apostles was binding. They were the infallible and authoritative messengers of Christ, whereas, excuse me, the inspiration of the prophet was occasional and transient. The later differed from teachers inasmuch as they were not necessarily inspired, but taught to others what they themselves learned from the scriptures or from the inspired men, right? End quote. So apostles, they were authoritative representatives sent by Christ. Prophets, on the other hand, had messages from God, right? This is what God says, and then they, they say it. It was, it was momentary. It was an occasional thing. Teachers, then, he says, are different yet. They, they are ones that, that learn from the apostolic teaching. They learn from the scriptures and from these inspired men, and then they teach it to other people. So, then putting all of this together, the church today does not have apostles. There's not prophets in this sense because the Old and New Testaments are complete and there's no, there's no need. We don't need continuing revelation. We have everything we need and we call this the, the sufficiency of Scripture. James Boyce says it clearly. He says, the gift of prophecy in this sense, like the gift of apostleship, is something that is no longer with the church since having the completed Old and New Testaments. We no longer need it. The Bible is for us the recorded testimony of these required, these inspired men. The book of Ephesians, I think, makes this, this clear. The church is built on the foundation that foundation is, is the apostles and the prophets with, with Christ being the, the cornerstone. The church was, was built on these inspired men. The scriptures are the record of all of this. And they themselves, the scriptures are, are inspired. It's, that is God's word to us. And now the, the Lord has given teachers, he's gifted teachers, we're going to talk about that more in a, a minute, to expand God's word to us. Teachers are not divinely, divinely inspired, and they do not say, thus saith the Lord, unless they're, unless they're reading the scriptures. But I want you to notice something here, though, something very important, and that is how important the gift of prophecy was in the early church. These churches that didn't have the, the canon of scripture, the one letter here and one letter here being passed around, they needed divine direction. They needed God speaking to them. The, the prophet was, was such an, an instrumental thing, and a great gift in the life of the early church when the scriptures, when they didn't have the, the completed scriptures. Now, in our text, we see Paul talking about this gift, and he says, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, the word translated proportion there is the word uh, analogia, where we get our word analogy, and it's actually a, a really important concept. When it, when it comes to prophecy that we've been given, the scriptures, right, are the, the record of, of that prophecy, we have a, a principle, that, a, a doctrine that we call the analogy of faith. 
right? So coming from that word. And when we speak of uh, the analogy of faith, what we're saying is that to understand scripture, we need to compare scripture with scripture. And what we mean by that is, is that we interpret passages on a given subject uh, and we find that the clearest passage on the subject and interpret the, the less clear ones with the ones that are more clear. So what is clear in scripture helps us to understand what is less clear. That's the analogy of faith. Some people say, that, that we need fresh words or, or more revelation from God to, to make what we have clear. But this isn't, isn't the case. We have what we need. We shouldn't therefore hold up what is unclear in Scripture as a need for more revelation. And we shouldn't seek it. There's other places in Scripture that, that might bear to, to witness and, and make them more clear. Now, in our text, I would suggest that, it, that when it says that prophecy is, is to be done in proportion to our faith. Note that the text isn't saying his faith. So not the prophet's faith. It is the faith or our, our faith. I would suggest that this was implying some kind of control or, or limitation on the prophet, such as the prophet was bound by prior revelation. This would be akin to our doctrine of the analogy of faith. Because anyone that says, thus saith the Lord, needs to be tested. And it needs to be understood in light of the revelation that was already given. Second, so that was, that was prophecy. We've talked about prophecy a lot longer than we're going to talk about the other ones, I, I promise. Second, though, serving. The gift of, of service should be used in our serving. The Greek word here can be translated as, as ministry, such as ministry of the word. So teaching the word of God is an act of, of service. It's most likely, though, that, that what's meant here isn't a specific way of using it. It's, it's probably referring to all kinds of ministry, all kinds of service for the sake of Jesus. The Greek word here is, is also where we get the word deacon. So some suggest that it refers to a specific office or, or functional life of the church where, where we're supposed to serve others, but we're all supposed to serve others. In fact, we see the same word in Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, where we are told that, that Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So that act of service was actually in Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. So I, I would suggest that it's a, a broad service. I mean, if we as Christians serve one another and let that be seen in our serving. Third, there's, there's teaching. We talked about this a little bit, but now one or another, this gift is, is in all of the New Testament lists of spiritual gifts. It's that critical. It's a, it's a crucial gift because the gifts of apostleship and prophecy have, have, have ceased. They're no longer with us, but we're, we're still with revelation. We still have God's word to us and we have it preserved in, in the Holy Scripture. So the teaching of that revelation is extremely important. One prominent pastor said that in his, estimate, in his estimation, one third of Christians probably have the gift of teaching and should be exercising it. But teaching is is critical in the New Testament. What was handed to you should be faithfully passed down to others. The problem is that many with the gift of teaching are not in a place to teach. They're not familiar with the scriptures. They do not understand the faith that hasn't even been passed down to them. Or if it was passed down to them, it was passed down to them in the form of a bunch of moralistic tales. I, I heard a message not long ago on, on Noah, and the teacher did a, a wonderful job of, of, of pointing out how wicked the people were and how they deserved the, the judgment of God during the time of Noah. But when he got to the end, it, his point was, now you need to turn your life around. Now you need to live for God, because if you don't, you're going to perish. There, there was no mention of the fact that 
we're radically wicked. We deserve this judgment. No mention of the fact that in and of ourselves, there's no chance that we could possibly ever not deserve condemnation. The only hope we have is to flee to Christ, to put our hope and trust in him. That story points us to Christ as being our, our lifeboat, not because we deserve it. It doesn't say that we ought to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We cannot do that. I say that to say this, that teaching a lot of times is common sense. It's Christianity 101, right? Get better, live for God so that he doesn't punish you. That really isn't Christianity. You know, Noah's Ark, that story is is a call to repent. Yes. And the teacher stressed that well, but repent and flee to Christ is your only hope. That, that he admits, and that's foundational. Oh, how important teachers are. I'm not talking about some deep and, and complex theological point. We're talking about Christian basics of the gospel. And when we get the gospel, and when we get what Christ has done for us, then we get that we have the responsibility to share it, to pass it down, to hand it over so that the next generation doesn't miss the truths of the gospel. The next spiritual gift is is encouragement, or as the ESV says, exhorts. The word encouragement is a a pretty soft word. It's giving somebody a pat on the back saying, good job. In in the Bible, the word there is, is used 107 times, and it's translated in all sorts of ways. Beseech, comfort, desire, pray, entreat, console, exhort. Uh, the, the word is, is used in, in John 14 through 16 in reference to the Holy Spirit's work as a counselor or an advocate to, to come alongside another and, and help them out. I mean, that's the idea in, in those chapters. There's a, there's a great need for people uh, to do that, don't they? To come alongside and help, not just to offer lip service. Not just to give an encouraging word, although encouraging words are important, but somebody that actually takes the time and effort to come alongside you and walk you through that. That's a wonderful gift. And I'm sure you know people like that. And we should pray for those people and others that they would use that gift of of exhortation. We also see uh, contributing. John Calvin and others here see this as a as a reference to an official church office, right? Somebody in the church that is entrusted with the task of, of contributing to the needs of others. And if you're dealing with other people's money in life in the church, there's a tendency not to be generous. So I think Calvin has a point that churches are to be generous, but I also agree with, with others here that they see this as a more broad statement for each of us because each of us has been given much, right? Some more than, than others, some more time than, than money, although I'd agree that, that money here is probably what's primarily in view. But just the same, we ought to be generous with what we have been given. Did you know that the statistics tell us that it is actually the, the poor who are the most generous in terms of proportionate giving and the rich are least generous in terms of proportionate giving. Of course, that tr- isn't true in, in every case, but it is a lot. At least that's what, what polls and, and numbers seem to indicate. Leadership is another gift that's listed here. It, it's interesting to me that this is in the list of, of spiritual gifts here. Uh, because the word means government, administration, management. But, but we see pretty quickly, it's very important when it comes to looking at looking after God's church, isn't it, to manage it well. I mean, this is a quality that we would look for in, in elders and in those who, who guide the, the church. 
I think it's difficult to think of what Paul must have meant here when he wrote this in his day, but certainly we see the, the need in our day. It is, it's needed. It, it had to be needed in the first church. It's needed today as well. It probably functions differently. But the, the fact is, all organizations require management, and the church is, is no different than that. Last here, showing mercy. Showing mercy to others uh, is something that shouldn't be done begrudgingly. In fact, the Greek word for cheerfulness here is where we get our word for hilarious. So not only should mercy not be given to, to others um, in, in a way where, the, you know, where we just we're forced to, like with our hands tied behind our back, but we should be happy and, and glad and, and cheerful to extend mercy to other people. Mercy is the other side of grace, right? Grace is getting something that you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. So for us to extend mercy to others is to recognize that, that other people have done something that they, or acted a certain way, or they are a certain way, or, or whatever, and, and they deserve, in, in our mind, our, our anger, our retribution. They don't deserve our, our friendship or our company because of what they've done or who they are. But mercy is saying, this is what they deserve. This is what I believe they deserve, but I'm going to give them what they don't deserve, and I'm going to do it with gladness. Why? Because that's how we've been treated by God. God has shown us incredibly mer- incredible mercy. Not only did he give us what we don't deserve, but he's also not given us what we do deserve. Christ took that punishment willingly for us. That punishment that we deserved, the weight of, of God's wrath for our sin, God withheld that. And knowing that should make us people who are eager to show mercy to others with cheerfulness. Let me just close with, with this. Uh, Ray Stedman uh, asked a question uh, in relation to spiritual gifts. Who are you? Right? Who, who am I? This is how he answers, and I quote, I am a son of God among the sons of men. I am equipped with the power of God to labor today. In the very work given me today, God will be with me and doing it through me. I'm gifted with special abilities to help people in various areas, and I don't have to wait until Sunday to use those gifts. I can use them anywhere. I can exercise the gift that God has given me as soon as I find out what it is by taking note of my desires and by asking others what they see in me and by trying out various things. I'm going to set myself to the lifelong task of keeping that gift busy, end quote. In 2 tes- in, uh, Timothy 1.6, Paul told the young Timothy to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you. I mean, isn't that what Paul is saying here in, in these representative list of, of gifts? I mean, certainly he's, 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 he's not suggesting that there is only seven gifts. He's making the point that if you're united to Christ, you're part of that body that has different members with diverse functions, and these functions ought to be used, right? Fan that flame. Why? Because that's how the body works. And when the body functions like it should, God is glorified. Which is the point of our lives, right? That, that, that God is, is glorified. That's the point of the, the church. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So, that would be my encouragement to, to you today. To, 
to fan the, the flame of the gift that, that God has given you. If you don't know what it is, if you're not sure, if you're uncertain, set, set your mind on, on, on figuring it out. Find out, you know, where, where is that gift? Get involved in, in things and, and start consciously thinking about it. Do something. Don't sit back and, and do nothing. And when you think that you've discovered where God has gifted you in certain areas, use those things. Set your, your, set your mind on a, a lifelong pursuit of, of using that gift, of fanning that flame of that gift so that the church might be emboldened and that other people in the, in the church would, would benefit from that gift and that God would just be glorified in and through you. So, well, I've, I've talked long enough. Um, 43 minutes, my thing says, but I did announcements and stuff um, and probably rambled on there. So it wasn't, it wasn't that long. But let me pray for you and then we'll be done.